welcome to today's episode of Ownership Matters, a podcast for homeowners in resident-owned communities. Brought to you by Rock USA. I'm Paul Bradley. And I'm Mike Bullard. Listeners, we have a great guest for you today. One who will be familiar to some of the 150 rocks in New Hampshire. We're being joined by Alan Blake from the Rock and H team to talk about his new role in helping rocks solve infill needs. So infill is a term we use a lot day to day here in the office, but perhaps we should explain it a little bit for our listeners. Essentially, infill is just the act of bringing new homes into communities or replacing old or abandoned ones. Yeah, Mike. And while Alan's job is specific to New Hampshire, he does provide some really good advice that all resident-owned communities can benefit from. So let's jump right in. Alan, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode of Ownership Matters. Thanks for having me, Mike. I'm glad to be here. We can't wait to learn more about your new and innovative position with Rock NH. Just to be clear, that NH stands for New Hampshire, and Rock NH is a program of the New Hampshire Community Loan Fund. They're the ones that basically invented the limited equity co-op model for manufactured home communities, and to a large degree, why we're all here today. But that was a lot to bite off right off the bat. So how about to get us started, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself, Alan? How long have you been with Rock NH, and what did you do before that? Sure, Mike. So I started at Rock, New Hampshire about three years ago, and I'm an organizational trainer and technical assistant. So I work with the co-ops and helping them run their cooperative business. As you know, most of these co-ops have not had a lot of business experience, so they need somebody to guide them along a little bit. In my past life, I worked in corporate communications for about 30 years. So, you know, I worked with a lot of people in a variety of social economic situations and across departments and organizations, working with people with multiple business partners on a variety of projects. And I think that's kind of given me a background in navigating the many aspects of running a business, including completing building projects, which is what I'm working on a lot now. And I've also had a background in higher education. So I think that that helps me in working with adult learners and learning new things like running their business and also bringing new homes into their communities. Wow, what a great background, Alan. And uh, so happy to have you involved in here at Rock NH to uh, help co-ops in New Hampshire thrive. So glad you're bringing that talent to the team. I really want to get into this new role you have at the Community Loan Fund, and it's aimed right at the success of resident-owned communities, filling vacant sites and bringing in new housing. Can you tell us about your new role and let us know how it's going. Sure. You know, so one of the things we've learned in the past few years is that, uh, you know, bringing new homes into communities is a really challenging project. There's a lot going on. The people that are running the co-ops are volunteers. They don't have a ton of time and they're also, you know, running the business already. And then to ask them to take on a job like filling lots is a big challenge. And a lot of communities have done that and they've done it very successfully but others kind of had faltered a little bit just because of the level of work required. So my new role is to really to be more hands-on and helping them in that process. So that might mean not only doing training and consulting, but actually talking to contractors, talking to dealers, talking to realtors, and getting some of that legwork done so that, that they feel that they have some support in getting these projects done. And I think that's really been valuable to them, knowing that they have that support. And I think for the dealers and contractors and other partners, it works for them well, too, because they feel that they have a point person that they can go to 
to help get a project completed. That's a really great point and thought of it from that side of things. But Alan, why is infill so important to Iraq? What are the impacts of a successful campaign to fill vacant spots? And what do the economics look like for the homeowners who already live there? Well, you know, filling empty lots is probably one of the primary challenges that co-ops have right now. If you think about an empty lot in a community, if a community's lot rent is, say, $400 a month, just to use an example, if you multiply that by 12 months, that's $4,800 a year that that community is losing in revenue just for that one lot. So if they have multiple lots, you're really talking about a lot of money that's being left on the table that would otherwise be available to them in running their business. So if you think about how that helps the current residents, you know, you're spreading their operating costs over more members, which obviously puts downward pressure on their lot rent, right? So that's, that's the economic aspect of it that's so important. But you know, there's a lot of other benefits to infill that don't get talked about as much. One of those is simply that you know, empty lots in a community are kind of an eyesore. They tend to become overgrown, not tended to. Sometimes debris gets left from the previous owner of that home. You know, there could be utility connections exposed or something like that. So when a new home goes in there, you're really improving the visual appeal of that lot and consequently of the community in general. And that's not something that people think about generally, but they start thinking about it when they see the new home go in. And you'll hear just a lot of positive comments about how nice it looks and how nice it is to have that lot filled and how happy people are about it. So that's a huge benefit as well. And, you know, that's a certain type of civic pride that grows off itself. You know, when you tell a community that they need to fill lots and they look at all the work involved and, you know, it's easy to be skeptical about whether they can get that done or not. But once they start to see some progress and successfully install a home, you know, everything changes. People say, yeah, we can do this. This looks great. This is bringing new people into the community. This is exciting. And you know how people are when they see a success story, you know, they want to jump on board, right? Wow, that's great. A whole list of benefits there. And we can't overlook the benefit to the broader community, you know, which is another affordable home in a region or in the town or city. And that's a benefit for everybody. And we certainly see are seeing that around the country, just an affordable housing crisis that is of the worst I've seen in my career, for sure. Alan, I appreciate you laying out those benefits. I'd love if you could give us a couple of examples, perhaps, of some co-ops that have successfully undertaken infill. Maybe give us a bird's eye view of the process they went through. How did it work? And what was the co-op's role? How did perhaps they incentivize move-ins, et cetera? Just draw a picture for us. So a good example of a successful infill project was at Mascoma Valley in Canaan, New Hampshire. And they had five empty lots and they were struggling with whether they could take on the debt to buy a home and install it and make their money back. And so I encouraged them to take a good look at the, the market and talk to some realtors because Canaan is located not too far from Lebanon, New Hampshire and Hanover, New Hampshire, where there's a very strong job market, very nice communities where there's a lack of affordable housing. And what they found was that they really thought that they could sell that home for more than it would cost to install it. So they took out a loan, a revolving line of credit from the New Hampshire Community Loan Fund. They contacted a dealer 
that would install the home and do everything involved in getting it ready for occupancy. They used their capital reserves to put the down payment down to kind of reduce the amount of money they had to borrow. They picked out a nice home with three bedrooms because they're right by a school, a high school. So that was a, a really good benefit to look at for potential home buyers. And within nine months, they had the home installed. It sold very quickly for more than it cost them to install the home. So they made a small profit and the home is occupied now. It looks fantastic. The community is excited about it. And this is one of those communities that was very skeptical and very cautious about going into taking on additional debt. But they jumped in and they worked hard on it. And they have since installed another home that is up for sale right now that they bought and had installed. And in the meantime, a private homeowner bought one and had one installed in one of the vacant lots as well. So over less than two years, they've got three new homes in that community. And it seems to be going really well. They're happy, even though the price of mobile homes has gone up dramatically over the last year, they were able to um, recoup their costs. And they're looking at going through the process again to fill those remaining lots. I can give another example that's in Northfield, New Hampshire, and that's a Soderbrook co-op. And they did two homes over about a year and a half period, they also used a revolving line of credit. They were able to sell the homes and recover their costs in pretty much the same way that Mascoma Valley did. But in addition to that, because they were so successful in turning those homes over quickly, they decided to develop two additional lots in their community on their own. So they're on their own going to the town. They got the permitting. They got a contractor to prepare the lots and install the pads. And now they're marketing the lots to individuals to install their own homes. So that's another project where, you know, they started out skeptical, boy, can we do this? Were we able to sell the homes at, at what we paid for them? They did it successfully and they said, you know, this is great. This is the way to go. Let's keep going. And they've taken that on, on themselves. So that's pretty exciting to see. Very exciting. Of course, success breeds success. Just fabulous examples. And I'm going to assume that you're now hearing from other co-ops, seeing the success that these communities have had within Phil. I'm assuming other communities are starting to catch the bug and seeing opportunity here. Yeah, there's a lot of interest in um, communities in filling empty lots and also in replacing homes that have either become abandoned or the owners left and just kind of left them there or homes that are older and just need to be replaced because they were installed in the seventies or something like that. So people are really looking at that and recognizing that there's a lost opportunity for them if they don't do something. So I see a lot of that going on and the Hughes cooperative in Manchester and the one in Winchester that has a couple of vacant lots and they're, they're looking at different ways to get it done. In some cases, they're finding dealers that recognize with the housing prices the way they are now that, that they can put a home in on spec and make their money back and make a profit, which kind of reduces the workload on the co-op itself. In other cases where the housing market isn't as strong, they're preparing lots by installing a pad. And what we're finding with that is that if a pad is on the lot, that a homeowner is much more likely to take on the task of buying a home and getting it installed themselves. Whereas if they have to install the pad, they see that as an additional level of work that can sometimes just become an obstacle to the entire project. 
And again, working with dealers to let them know that they've installed pads and then notifying the dealers that, hey, I have a pad in a community, in a nice community that's ready to go if you sell a house, right? So I encourage those communities to go to the dealer first and find out what size homes they have coming or what size homes are the most popular so that they build a pad that that has the most opportunity to accept a home that they're likely to see come in. Well, I was going to ask the question, how do you size that? So absolutely, one pad does not fit all home sizes. So you're certainly encouraging them to speak with the retailer, dealer, and see what the opportunities are and what the right sizing is. I know this firsthand from my mother purchasing a home, bringing a new home into the Freedom Village Cooperative. I'll be curious, Alan, what you're seeing for pricing, but this was a handful of years ago. That home was bought. This is a multi-section home, Energy Star rated Clayton product. $71 per square foot turnkey is what we were able to install that home in Freedom Village Cooperative for. That is unbelievable, of course. You know, if you think about what site-built houses are costing, well in excess of $200 a square foot finished. What are you seeing for pricing in the in the current market? Well, I don't have a square foot price and it's hard to hone in on one right now because prices are changing rapidly. But, you know, we're seeing home prices anything from a small home of $55 to $75,000 for a, a 14 by 60 and for a double wide, like a 24 by 48, it might be anywhere, you know, up to $95,000. I should say that's not completely installed. That's sometimes just the home price. So I, I like to tell communities now that for using the 14 by 70 as a standard, you're probably looking at $100,000 to get something installed. A double wide is going to be more. A smaller home is going to be a little bit less, but that's not unreasonable. And the home prices, depending on the market, will typically cover the costs of that installation. Because you get into the North Country, the market's not as strong, so you have to take that into consideration. I mean, and there's a lot of variables about how the condition of the lot and how, how far they have to bring the water and the sewer and so forth. But the prices have definitely gone up, and you see it across the board with the uh, home prices and the delivery cost, and now they're selling inflation insurance. Some manufacturers are making it a mandatory cost. So uh, this, you know, the prices are not as low as we'd hope, but there's certainly a lot less than a stick built home. Alan, I want to ask you to talk specifically here about communities with a real significant infill need. I know that the New Hampshire Community Loan Fund pulled off a really successful program at a community called Rock Rimmon Co-op that had a, a significant infill need. But I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that, but then how you're taking the lessons learned in that successful project and applying them to some other communities that also have big needs for infill. Yeah, sure, Mike. So at Rock Rimmon in Danville, New Hampshire, there was, I believe, 10 vacant lots, and there was a desire to kind of shorten the, the cycle time to get those lots filled. And they identified a specific need, which was for veterans that were in, in need of affordable housing. So the New Hampshire Community Loan Fund was able to arrange to have basically small one-bedroom mobile homes made and installed at Rock Rim and, and marketed specifically to vets. So we learned some lessons from that project, which was very successful, in that we could kind of scale up the installation of manufactured housing in communities that had multiple vacancies. So 
We're looking at a couple of projects right now. One is um, we have an investor that may be willing to put up some money to purchase multiple manufactured housing units and install them all at once in a community in Southern New Hampshire, rather than doing one at a time as we've traditionally done through a revolving line of credit. So that would reduce the cycle time dramatically if we could put, for example, five or six or seven homes into a community in one building season, rather than spreading it out over five or six or seven years. Another project we're looking at is up in the North Country in Colebrook, where we have a a large manufacturer who plans to hire a lot of new employees over the next two years. And we have a community with double digit vacant lots. And is there some way to partner with that employer to somehow either subsidize or somehow make it easier to, to handle the costs of installing, you know, 10, 12, 15 mobile homes and do it in, again, a shortened cycle rather than over five or 10 years, but maybe two or three years and how that might work. So we're looking at that, talking to different people and trying to think out of the box about how we can come to scale a little bit better and reduce cycle time to fill vacant lots. And so in New Hampshire, can you talk a little bit about what infill has looked like over the last couple of years? You know, I know with with supply chain issues hitting every industry out there, I mean, you can't go a couple of days without seeing it on the news. What should a home buyer expect in terms of a time frame between picking out the home that they want and then moving in? Yeah, so 2020 wasn't too bad for infill because most manufacturers had already delivered homes to dealers and they were on the lots and you could buy a home and get it installed and not too long of a time period, 90 days, maybe even six months in that time frame. But then as 2021 came into play, it became clear that there was a supply chain issue. So the um, delivery periods went out, you know, six to nine months, but still homes could get delivered. You could get one purchased and installed, you know, within a year fairly easily Now you're looking at delivery times that have gotten increasingly extended. So if you ordered a mobile home today, most dealers would tell you that it's going to be a year before it gets delivered. If, in fact, you can get into the queue to get it manufactured. Some manufacturers right now aren't even taking additional orders because they're backed up so much. So that's really a challenge, right? You know, you can look around. We have been able to find some dealers that already had homes ordered. So we just had one installed in Exeter, you know, with basically a three-month turnaround. There's been a couple other units that have become available from dealers who had some foresight and put them into the queue early on. So that's a challenge. What what I'm telling co-ops now is if you want to do infill, you should be targeting 2023, but that doesn't mean you wait until 2023. So there's a lot of legwork that you can do right now. So, Alan, what's the scope of the the infill need in New Hampshire right now? I mean, you all work with, what, close to 150 resident communities now. How many vacant sites are there in those communities? Do you have a handle on that? Yeah, we have a pretty good handle. Our numbers say, I think, 287. So it's in the 300 range. You know, there's probably some that we're not aware of that became vacant and others that got filled that we didn't know got filled. But I think that's a pretty good handle on it, that there's certainly um, around 300 vacant lots out there. Hmm. Some of them are ones and twos in communities, and there's some other communities that have quite a few number that they need to fill. So we have a new community, Evans Cooperative in Epping. They just became a co-op, and they have seven empty lots. 
that's a project that we definitely want to do some work on. We're looking at it right now and looking at um, potential options for that. We have a community up in um, Colebrook in the North Country that has a significant amount of empty lots, but they got some infrastructure issues that have to be dealt with before you can, you know, put new homes on those lots in a conscientious way. So they're out there all over the state. There's lots of opportunity. You know, the supply chain for manufactured housing is definitely a challenge, but, you know, doing the legwork now will help people, you know, get those homes installed as soon as they can. Right. There's an old Manila folder at the Community Loan Fund because I worked with Evans Community over in Epping many, many years ago, Alan, obviously uh, (laughs) unsuccessful in their first attempt to become a co-op, but they uh, apparently were successful here recently. So that's wonderful. Let's shift over to the homebuyer side. And for our listeners, Alan, if you could draw a picture, give us some insight into who are the people looking to purchase homes in communities? Are these, give us some sense of that. And how are they going about purchasing their homes? What are they having to navigate to, to find a home in a community these days? Yeah, well, the, the buyers, I think, really go a- across the board. So you have a lot of young people looking to purchase their first home and maybe have small families and they want to be near schools and uh, in, a, in a quiet, safe community. And they're looking to start to build their personal wealth through home ownership. And so they're looking for, you know, three bedroom units if they can find them. and then you go all the way to the under, other end of the spectrum where you have people that are downsizing in their elder years and are typically looking for smaller units, you know, even a one bedroom if they're on their own or, or a two bedroom smaller unit with, you know, with little requirements for caretaking, you know, as far as taking care of a lawn and plowing snow and things like that. So it does definitely run the spectrum. As you know, there's a huge affordable housing crunch right now. So there's also a lot of younger people that are looking to get out of rentals. The rental options are dwindling. So they're looking to find um, mobile homes as, as an option and an affordable one and to get themselves into home ownership as well. Mm-hmm. Great. You mentioned earlier when you were talking about the different roles involved here, you mentioned dealers and contractors, but you also mentioned realtors. Now, in some parts of the country, that's common where Realtors will list manufactured homes in communities on multiple listing, take those listings and list it on multiple listing. And that's true in New Hampshire. It's not true everywhere, but it is true here. How many of these new homes are on multiple listing or how are co-ops making those empty sites available? Or if they've placed a spec home, how are they making that home for sale noticed, uh, marketed? Yeah. So if they're doing a spec home, it's typically the dealer that will um, take care of that and will um, list it if they don't already have a buyer lined up. So that's one of the benefits of using a dealer who is willing to spec a house is they'll really take care of all the the marketing of the home and the co-ops don't have to worry about it. You know, the marketing of the lots is often done kind of on a shoestring budget, just letting realtors know that there are lots available putting signs out in their community so people know that lots are available. We also offer a listing service now. So we have a broker on our team that can put the availability of the lots on MLS. So that's something that we offer to the members as well. And that's pretty easy to do. A lot of them take advantage of that. And then, you know, word of mouth. My experience is that if there's an available home in a co-op right now, people hear about it. A lot of word of mouth in these communities, people telling their friends, people telling others that they know that are looking for housing. 
So I think of all the challenges they have, you know, if there's a home in a lot ready to sell, that's probably the least challenge is finding a buyer. I've had this conversation with co-op leaders where about websites and of course marketing websites and co-op leaders saying we don't have any need for a marketing website. You know, people find us, you know, in some respect. <laughs> There's a demand for affordable housing right now and they will find them before the home's ready. <laughs> I mean, a lot of the boards that I talk to say that they have people coming in to their community driving around looking to see if they have empty lots or homes for sale. So that's kind of an indication to them that this is something worth doing, you know, that they can sell a home. And that's a good problem to have, a high demand, right? Right. Alan, we had another guest a ways back, Dennis Jakubowski from Marilla Country Village, and, and we'll put a link to that uh, episode in the show notes. But he spoke about how they're filling empty spaces one at a time in his Western New York rock. But Alan, you hit this earlier on, but I'm hoping that you can sort of give us a concise list for board members out there in rocks that have not begun to plan for their infill needs, right? Give us the bullet points. What are the first two or three things they should do to get started? Well, I think they should start to build a plan and a budget. So they should talk to a couple of dealers or a dealer that's near to them that's likely to know that they know something about their community and go and talk to them about the availability of homes, what size homes are selling, what services do they offer as far as not just selling them the home, but do they do the delivery to the community? Do they do the service connections? Do they do the pad installation? You know, what services do they, do they provide? What can they expect for home sale pricing? And also, I suggest that they get from dealers a list of contractors that they deal with. So if they don't do installation and connections themselves, find out what contractors that dealer uses to get those services done and then contact those contractors to see if they'd be willing to do work in their community. Because if you have you know, contractors that know each other and are familiar with, that, with each other working together, they get jobs done a lot quicker, a lot easier with a lot fewer hassles because they know each other and they're going to work with each other in the future, right? They know what to expect. Then I tell them to go out and talk to a realtor or at least one realtor, you know, find out, hey, do you do mobile homes? Do you do manufactured housing? What's your commission? How aggressive are you? Have you sold them in the past? What are some of the comps that they should be looking at as far as what other units have sold for? Also, will they market the product before it's on the lot and ready to sell? So in other words, you know, you see spec housing advertised all the time, you know. Coming soon. Yeah, we'll build you this home for X amount of money and then it'll be ready in whatever time frame. So, you know, if you've got a good dealer and a good community that's been showing that they can follow through on these projects, you should be able to find a realtor that'll begin marketing them before the home's actually there. And so if they're taking a loan, for example, to get that home installed, any amount of time they can shorten to get the home installed is less that they have to pay an in interest, right? So that's really important too. And go out and measure the lot. Number one, how big of a home can you put there? One more thing, Alan, I think I would add for co-op leaders to include when they're out talking with the dealers or retailers and other folks in the businesses, bring some co-op materials with you and explain the cooperative. Many times dealers, perhaps a dealer that's in that region, won't even know how the cooperative operates. They won't know 
how to sell a home in a co-op without being educated as to how the co-op operates and and what you're up to there. So be patient, take your time and explain what resident ownership is all about because that retailer or that dealer is going to be potentially selling a home in your community. Yeah, that's a really good point. And that's also true with realtors that you should bring them some materials, including the membership application package so that they understand that the home sale depends on members being approved for membership in that cooperative and, you know, a background check and a financial check as well. Absolutely. That's great. And listeners, the Rock NH team has put together some very high quality videos. Uh, Congratulations to the team on these. Very impressive. We will, of course, link those videos in the show notes so everyone gets a chance to see those afterwards. I'm curious, Alan, how have those videos been received? I assume you're using those when you're out working with communities, people finding those helpful? Yeah, they really do. When I get calls from communities that want me to come and talk to them about infill, you know, I'm always happy to do that. And I always suggest that they go and look at the videos first so that that will give them some idea of what they're getting into and might prompt some questions that they might have and kind of prepare them for the whole process. So it's a, it's a really good primer to get them ready to um, get into the infill projects. Great. Great. Alan, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to come and uh, talk with us here on Ownership Matters. You know, this is an area of great interest to co-op members and leaders, something that, you know, everyone needs to know quite a bit about to take a step into it and be successful at it. And you've really uh, pulled the curtains back and given us some great insight into infill with manufactured housing and resident-owned communities. So thank you so much, Alan, for joining us. And uh, we look forward to seeing more and more great projects from you. Happy to come back anytime. Great to have you. Oh, that was a great conversation with Alan. Paul, I know you're really well-versed in infill and helped your mom buy a home in Iraq a few years ago, but I'm more of a blank slate, or at least I was until I learned a lot from this conversation. Well, he did have some really great tips for rock leaders, Mike. And, you know, his best tip, I thought, was, you know, measure those empty lots and talk to local home dealers and people in the industry, you know, real estate agents, what home could fit on a lot And what's the market for that home? And then who are the suppliers that can help you get that home in place and get that home sold? Speaking of suppliers, I was shocked to hear Alan say that homes are a year out. And on the positive side, it gives Rocks plenty of time to prepare for those infill projects. Yeah, things are pretty backed up in the factories. The turnaround time on new homes is, is really staggering, something I've never seen before. And I hope it's something that gets shorter as we get through this pandemic. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of Ownership Matters. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, everyone, and talk soon. Bye.